0: Financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly, and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report with industry veterans Michael Hartsman and Dominic Tavella. We'll break down the news, trends, and overall direction of the markets, telling you what may be coming next, investment opportunities, and what to avoid. Now, here are your hosts, Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartsman.
1: All right, I'm Michael Hartzman. Today is Tuesday, February 20th, 2024, and I'm on as
2: always with my partner, Dominic Tavella. How are you, Dominic? Good evening. Uh, good evening, Mike. i um, back in the New York tri-state area, so having to deal with the cold, but no complaints on my part, Mike.
1: Yeah, I have to give you credit. When we did our morning call this morning, you were in sunny
2: Florida, and now you're in Chile, Long Island. So You uh, had your technology. doubts, Mike. Why don't, you, why don't you just admit it? Get them out in the open right now. You had your doubts, but uh, and I, I'm at the whims of the airlines, but we made it. We're here. I definitely had my doubts.
1: So um, so while you were flying in the air, the market um, had, had some great segue. They had some uh, turbulence as well. Um, last week, Dom, the market, the market was down. The S and P was down about a third of a point. No big deal. The Nasdaq gave back about one and a half. Today, the market was down a little bit more. But um, you know, we have a great guest tonight to tell us whether we're in a little bit of a breather market, just um, reflecting on the last three or four months of a terrific run. Or is this starting something worse? I don't think it is. But um, right now, we're kind of a little bit in a waiting seat, wait and see pattern, I think.
2: Yeah, Mike, and I think just from a, a seasonality, uh, this is a time uh, the majority of companies have reported earnings. Uh, let's be honest; they've actually been pretty good. With technology taking the lead on that, the tech companies really have scored a pretty pretty good number there uh, for the overall markets, and are, and are, frankly, are responsible for most of the gains again so far this year. But uh, not quite the dire doom and gloom that some analysts were talking about. So, first. Us- to take a little pause here, maybe even a little bit retracement, uh, let the market take a breather. I think, I think honestly, is expected and, and, frankly, healthy. I think it's a good thing.
1: Oh yeah, I think a retracement is uh, is a healthy exercise, right? Um, you know, one of the, one of the things the market always worries about is when they have nothing to worry about and And we call that the volatility index. And I'm not saying we don't have anything to worry about right now. But every now and again, Dom, investors get a little complacent. and And my friends in Brooklyn love when I use this line. But every now and again, we need a you know we need a two by four to the back of the head to 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 wake people up and say, "Hey, it doesn't just go straight up."
2: Well, and the, and the two by four, Mike, and I hate to say I love the analogy, but but the two by four is that this this idea that the Federal Reserve is going to dramatically lower interest rates and was going to do it about a half a dozen times. And, and I know it's a little bit of a repeat on our show here, but that wasn't our expectations. And I think the, the two by four is that, hey, wait a minute, the economy is healthy enough and chugging along well enough that the Federal Reserve doesn't really we have to rush into making a decision, and it just might take longer for rates to come down and maybe not come down as dramatically as some people, some experts had thought that it would. And and
1: again, we talked about it on this show that we felt cutting interest rates in March and having six interest rate cuts was creating a false sense of expectation that the market would respond negatively to when they didn't get what they wanted. And it's, I think, obvious now, they're not gonna get what they want. And here's a little bit of a tantrum as a result of that.
2: And to your point earlier in one of our prior uh, calls, Mike, um, be careful what you wish for, because if the economy is moving along at a pretty healthy clip, i.e. we're not going to go into a recession, then earnings should actually hold up pretty well. Uh, And if earnings and job uh, growth holds up pretty well, then the economy can kind of Muddle along here, maybe at a lower slower rate, but not a recession and I think putting interest rates aside for right now, we don't want a recession, we don't want an economic collapse
1: i'm glad I'm glad you brought up a recession because I was going to ask you the loaded question i'm going we're gonna ask Phil Blancado the same question when he when he gets on right after the break. Dumb. Do you feel a recession's off the table for 2024? Do you think? Do you think we've actually had the no-landing economy?
2: That's a, that's a great question, and and I'm sure that's one of the points we'll we'll get into with Phil. But I'll I'll bring up two quick points, Mike. The first is that uh, economically, Japan just went into a technical recession. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the same uh, measure, uh, Germany went into a technical recession. Yet, so if you look at their economies, they're actually doing pretty well. Meaning that the the employment jobs numbers are pretty good, um, and the Japanese stock market has had one of the all-time great years in the last 12 months so we could be in a technical recession, two consecutive quarters of negative growth and some other qualifiers. We could be in a technical recession in the latter part of this year, but we don't want to look at a scenario like what happened in 2008, Mike, or 2001 after 9-11, where people lose jobs and unemployment goes to 8%, and that I don't think is in the cards. But a technical recession where the economy slows down maybe to new neutral coasts along. I don't think that's implausible. I think I don't think it's likely. I think we still muddle around that 1% growth, but I don't I don't think a recession's in the cards.
1: I agree with you. I don't think a recession is in the cards either. Um I think the feds did a relatively good job once they got started raising interest rates and kind of you know hitting the right pace on the way up and, and now they're in um, wait and see mode. Um, and again, I think, I think the fact that the job market's been as strong as it has been and the consumer, because they have jobs, I think once again, Dom, it's going to be the consumer that rescues the economy. I feel like they've been rescuing the economy for the last 20 years
2: so i i think this is a glass half full story mike my opinion um half of the country literally lives paycheck to paycheck social security check to social security check and most people are challenged mike i think you would agree with that those people yeah. go to the supermarket um uh it's it's tough trying to make that dollar that paycheck that social security check to the next check it, it's a challenge the cost of living really really has hurt those people the glass half full discussion is unemployment numbers are really low. Job growth continues to surprise. Those people do have jobs. Their wages have been increasing at a pretty respectable rate. The fear there is that they're going to not spend because they're worried. But frankly, they have the income, they have the resources, they can continue spending.
1: You know, you mentioned two thousand eight, two thousand nine, which was a super challenging time for the economy and, and for people in general. The recession was deep. There were layoffs, and your and government, were, you know, was sending stimulus checks, right, to, and to get people to spend money and to stimulate the economy and give people a life preserver who needed it. And, and right now, Dom, thank goodness, we're not even remotely talking about any of those things. None of those things are necessary. And yes, I agree with you. Half the economy is living paycheck to paycheck and we do have inflation. But unfortunately, half the, half the country's been living paycheck to paycheck for decades.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a challenge, Mike. And and back to living paycheck to paycheck, but when you're paying twenty to thirty percent more for goods and services, um, it, it just making that paycheck stretch out or that social security check stretch out that that much more of a challenge. And then you look at the amount of consumer debt, which a significant portion of that debt is held by that half of the population, and interest rates on those credit cards is through the roof. Again, it just creates it's a, a challenging situation. And we've seen retail sales and uh, top line sales by retail companies, i.e. the Home Depot's of the world that reported today. It's a challenging environment.
1: There's no doubt. And and we could do a whole show on why interest rates on credit cards are so outrageously high. That's a whole other show. But I will tell you the one place that we've had deflation, which I think is really helpful, is the price of gas and the price of oil. I right, guess if you remember the winter of twenty two, I believe it was two winters ago, wasn't you know gasoline like four fifty five bucks a gallon for a short period of time?
2: yeah mike i I really um think that this one is a, a a blessing uh literally um we've had an unusually mild winter here in the United States um and a very very unusually mild and this will be the second one in a row Mike the very very mild winter across Europe now when they're dependence on energy is so much greater than ours, i.e. domestic. We have the domestic energy, they don't. Um, Not having to pay exceedingly high prices really, really has helped out. And obviously, it's helped out us that it hasn't pushed the price of oil. Some people were talking $90 to $100 a barrel on oil. That just hasn't happened. That's helped on the inflation front a great deal, Mike.
1: So we, I think we've uh, teed up our guests pretty well. Dom on our open, our guest tonight is really is is. We always say he's a friend of the show. He's actually a, a personal friend of yours and mine, but really a friend of yours for thirty years, I think. Um, Phil Blancado, who's a president and CEO of Lattenberg Thalman Asset Management, he's a chairman of Lattenberg Investment Policy Committee, and he's a chief market strategy strategist at OSAIC. So, Phil's accomplished a lot in his career, and uh, I think we've teed him up nicely to uh, shake him down on where he thinks this economy is heading for the rest of 2024. And we'll be right back with Phil Blancato.
3: Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts.
4: Are you paying federal taxes on your cash? I work hard for my money that I keep in cash, and for the life of me, I can't imagine why anyone would want to pay federal taxes on their cash. That's why I keep my cash in the Lebenton Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, symbol L-E-G-A-X, le tax. Rates on cash are already so low, why pay federal taxes on the interest your cash earns? Remember, it's not what you earn, it's what you keep. The Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, L-E-T-A-X, may help you earn more on the cash you've worked hard for and keep more after-tax dollars in your pocket. Find out more about the fund by speaking with a Labenthal Global Advisors Private Wealth Advisor or its sponsor at dcmadvisors.com. For your hard-earned cash, why pay the tax when there's the tax? Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's not what you make it's what you keep. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800-441-7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities, the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax. After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors LLC and Ultimus Fund Distributors LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC.
1: From the boardroom to you, Voice
3: America Business Network.
0: You are listening to the Labenthal Report. If you have any questions or comments, please send an email to contact at labenthal.com. Now, back to the Labenthal Report.
1: All right, I'm Michael Hartzman, back with my partner Dominic Tavella, and our guest this evening, Phil Blancado. Phil's the president and CEO of Ladenberg As- Asset Management, the chairman of the Ladenberg Investment Policy Committee and the chief market strategist at Oseic, which I guess, Phil, is the parent company at this point? That's correct. Welcome to the show. Welcome back, Phil.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
2: I appreciate it very much. Thanks for joining us uh, this evening, Phil. Looking forward to your commentary.
3: We always have a lot of fun uh, 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 as a team here. We, we enjoy each other's uh, banter, I should say.
1: Absolutely. So let's start with an easy question. Are oh, we going to have a recession?
3: Um... Well, you know, the short answer is, the I, I don't think so. Uh, but here, here's your, your challenge in that you're looking at a scenario where sh- there are black swan events that loom on the horizon. Black swan meeting a terrible moment that would change the narrative, something like 2008 to a degree. Uh, and when you think of what's the really challenging part of the U.S. economy right now is, you know, higher inflation can have an impact on on, on the consumer. And while we'll be a, folks have a very good have a good job today and they've got a heck of a wage increase, the, the retirees have the bulk of the wealth in the country. All these things suggest that it's, if, if you had a recession, it would be mild. But the unknown is what's a little challenging. And the unknown being when you have high levels of interest rates for an extended period of time. And what's different this time, and that's a tough word to use, is that the Federal Reserve is trying to cut interest rates at a time the economy is still expanding. Those are unusual moments in time. So you all hit on oil. Oil is an example of a potential black swan event. It's unlikely the U.S. today produces more oil than it's ever produced before. The expectations in the next two years that that might go down a bit for a variety of different reasons, but the U.S. production is quite high right now. Uh, To Dom's point, in El Nino winters, which is what we're in this year, you have wetter winters. If you notice, the United States has only one very small part of the country that's in a drought, and it's because of, you know, Texas, for example, has rained finally. So when you look at Europe, the United States, warmer winters means you need less oil and gas. At the same token, we produce more liquefied natural gas than we ever had before. So there's things that could prevent that black swan in oil. It seems to be that way. The other black swan is interest rates. through higher levels of interest rates. For example, federal government debt, before the pandemic was $300 billion a year. It's now $900 billion a year, it's nearly tripled. So that money, we spend more on interest payments on our debt than we do in the defense budget. Same thing can happen to corporations. If interest rates continue to stay higher for longer, the amount of money they pay on the debt, the amount of money that they borrow, just like you and I, when we go to buy it, when we have too much debt and our interest payments, our, our monthly bills are too high, we, we buy less stuff. Well, the federal government can buy less stuff and the corporations buy less stuff or produce less stuff that leads to a a, a slowdown. But the one thing we have on our side, clearly, as being one of the largest economy in the world, the most diverse economy in the world, it makes it very difficult to send us into a recession because there's so many different drivers of strength in the US economy. But far and away, it's the US consumer. And the US consumer today, and this might be different than a lot of folks in your call are going to think, I would argue is in the best shape maybe ever. And by that I mean, Specifically, if you look at the total your worth, divided by how much you owe countrywide, it's the lowest of your lifetime. You look at what your home is worth, it's the most it's ever been worth. You look at your investments, the most it's ever been worth. You look at your salary, it's the highest it's ever been. So yes, things are a bit higher, a bit more expensive. But by and large, when the U.S. consumer is this strong, you don't get recessions.
2: So, Phil, just on on some of the points you brought up, one of the things that really does worry me is that that consumer that can afford to spend, if they get frightened, even though they have the money, even though they have the income, the minute they get frightened, they stop spending, right? They hold on to those dollars with both Fits. And I, I think is one of the black swan events that you might be talking about. If they something happens on a geopolitical uh, uh, stage or politically here in the U.S., they, they'll just stop spending. And that would bring the economy potentially crashing down.
3: Well, when you look at things like Carnival Cruise Lines or Viking Cruise Lines that are booked two years in advance, demographics matter. So you, your point is well taken with the millennial crowd, which believe it or not, the average millennial family is having more than two babies per family. It's a phenomenon where well, you didn't expect. But beyond the the idea of what's happening with the millennial crowd and the Gen Z crowd, the Gen X crowd and the boomer crowd are spending money pretty prolifically. To your point, what would scare them? A war would certainly make folks more, more concerned. Bankruptcies at, at, at uh, you know the corporate level, at big banking level. Uh, A prolonged political battle, battle that creates significant divisiveness in the country, which is possible, obviously, with where we're heading from an election standpoint. So you're right, Don. The things scare folks so their confidence level erodes. And we get to a point where because of the erosion in confidence and we measure this, everybody, every single month, there's two surveys. There's a consumer confidence and then there's a Michigan survey. Both of those measure them and both are not near they were at all time lows and they both take a margin higher so right now it's not necessarily an issue but to your point if the consumer begins to feel as though there are things that are breaking around them or it just gets too expensive to live they would be more conservative in their spending and to add to that the amount of money we saved during the pandemic has now in fact reversed where we have a scenario where we are no longer dealing with Folks having too much money in their savings account, they spent it. Where is there too much money today? Corporations are loaded with cash, $4 trillion. And the average consumer today has $6 trillion in money market savings that they didn't spend. Still holding on to a double where we were pre-pandemic. So when you have that cushion, it tends to make things a little bit easier. You don't get as scared as you might be. But you're right. If for some geopolitical event, an oil shock and interest rate shock suddenly – change that, then yeah, you'd get a recession because we are 70% based on how much consumers spend. But folks tend to, to vote with their pocketbooks and they also spend with those pocketbooks. And today, the average gal in New York City, our guy that was making 50,000 bucks a year is now making 65. That's a big difference.
1: So, Phil, you mentioned in, in your comments, the last point you mentioned was political divisiveness. I don't ever remember a time where there's been more political divisiveness as there is right now. And I think from 2016, it just gets progressively worse. So here we are, we're coming up again against another deadline. The last time we get, we were here, the Speaker of the House got fired. So how much more divisive can things get in Washington that it actually starts to have an effect on on, on people's mindset and how they spend money?
3: That's that's a very interesting and provocative question, and the reason why it's such an important question is because when folks get when we get into these types of environments, inevitably what happens is people get emotional. You watch Fox News, you watch MSNBC, these networks that are compelled to scare the living heck out of you to make you watch and, and make you think the world's coming to an end. And when folks get emotional, what do they do? They react poorly. That poor reaction will create a knee-jerk reaction in markets. We'll either sell one they shouldn't or, or, or panic into doing things that they shouldn't based on their investments. So the scenario of the headlines dominating your investment behavior and economic behavior are damaging. But interestingly, if you pull back the layers... Since the 1960s, we've only had two election cycles where we lost money. That'd be 2008 and 2000. Both of those were events that had other breakage in it: the 2008 financial crisis, the 2009 11 event, and tech bubble. So those were different, and today's tech market is nothing like 2000. When I hear people make the comparison of today's tech versus 2000, it's mind-boggling to me. It's stupid. It's just mind-boggling different today. Yeah, today. Profit margins on the Magnificent Seven are 20%. Profit margins on the rest of the s p are nine. Without the Magnificent Seven in the last quarter of the year, the s would have had negative earnings growth rather than positive. So it's it, there's a lot more to that story. They are the drivers of the economy far and away. Point being though, to your point, divisiveness in election cycles make people behave badly. And what should they do? You should let a professional help them with their money, and I don't mean like a sales pitch here. Our job is to not is, is to specifically be non-emotional about it, because factually, election years are positive. Factually, when you look at what happens after the Fed starts to cut interest rates, markets are almost always positive on the equity side and always positive on the bond side. And then, to be quite honest with you, when you look at elections and presidential cycles, the president doesn't influence the economy that much. I know folks want to beat up Joe Biden and they want to say whatever they want to say. The president, outside of tax policy, has almost no influence on the overall economic cycle. The economic cycle is predetermined by private sector business, by how much consumer spends, which is 70 percent of us. So, sure, you might be upset about why we spend some government money. That's a that's a factor. It's not. Our biggest economic driver, and you might be upset about where taxes are these days, and how much and what spending is overall. But certainly, as economics go, the president doesn't turn on the lights of any company in the United States. That's done by those folks there. Can they assist in policy? Yeah, but predominantly, it's a lot more of the cycles than the president of the United States.
1: Bill, <laughs> I, I, I thank you. I love that commentary just now. That was so perfect. Thank you. You're welcome.
3: I appreciate
2: that. Well, I'm going to bring it back to your your discussion on on tech stocks and, and in general. Um, this is as, as of last week, but two stocks were responsible for 50% of the gains in the S&P this year, and four stocks were responsible for 70% of the gains. Uh, I want to be sarcastic, though, so much for the markets broadening out, but but I think
3: they will. So what's your opinion on that? It's a great answer. I mean, a great, great question, and and answer simple. Last year, 109 percent of the return of the S and P was in those seven names. It went from the magnificent seven to the amazing six because Tesla's struggling right now. Inevitably, every single company in the history of the stock market has had its day where it came to an end. There isn't a single company that exists today that was around 100 years ago. It doesn't work that way. Some of the biggest names over here, Apple, has gone bankrupt twice since you've been investing in it. And maybe it's the darling today, but it certainly wasn't, not but 20 years ago. GE, great name, gone. Remember some of the tech names like Netscape and Red Hat, gone. So all these these phenomenons come and go because – at its genesis capitalism is built that way it's built to reinvent itself again and again and again and that's what happens i would argue microsoft is the most powerful company in the world today we wouldn't be having this conversation with, without microsoft brings to bear uh, and if you we wouldn't have the commerce in the country without google and meta bring to bear you wouldn't have the ability to communicate personally with, without apple brings to bear and so on and and then and then you can lump on amazon and so on and that, and that maybe Nvidia, which data should be at any moment here. Nvidia will be um, is uh, the future of where we're going from how we get our information. But when you think about it, what what where was the opportunity last year? Well, certainly the artificial intelligence boom is what drove the market higher, with the names you're mentioning representing the bulk of the return, 109 percent of the S and P 500. Would that continue into this year? Well, in an environment where interest rates have not hurt them exceptionally. Believe it or not, Microsoft earns, are you ready for this? $3.5 billion on their cash holdings alone. $150 billion in cash and they earn $3.5 billion. That covers the bulk of their operating expenses. These companies are defensive in and of themselves with profit margins, earnings growth that are exceptional. But to your question, will the market ever widen out? Yes. And when does it widen out? Where is your opportunity today? It's not necessarily in those names. You should still hold them. If you're up 100 percent, your profit, take 50. If you're up 20 percent, your profit, take 10. Take 50 percent of the money you made and go buy the other 493. And when will those 493 do well? They will do well when the Federal Reserve begins to cut interest rates and it's won the battle against inflation. And my expectation is the first cut is in September of this year. The next two cuts are in the first two quarter of next year because it'll take at at least another six to nine months to finish off the job on inflation, simply because we're not there from a wage standpoint. Wages are still above the rate of inflation. consumer, consumer is not done spending. And the US economy has not felt the full brunt of higher interest rates, because there's still roughly six to $10 trillion in cash sitting out there holding us up to a great degree besides the other things you already mentioned. So to answer your question, it happens. It always happens. It's a matter of a broadening economy based on lower interest rates that supports small cap companies and mid cap companies that buy more stuff and borrow more money. It's just that simple. Phil, let's
1: take a break. And when we come back, I want to explore a little bit more what I think I heard you say first interest rate cut is in September. Is that what you said? Yes, sir. Yeah, so let's spend some time on the other side talking about that because I think you're you're a little bit farther away on the calendar than most. so I like to uh, explore that if we can. You got it. So we'll be right back after a quick break. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. When you're thinking about where to park your cash for over 30 years in the business, I've been a fan of funds like the Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's managed for cash and designed, so the interest income you receive is free from federal taxes. And who
2: doesn't love paying less taxes? Mike, generating interest that's free from federal taxes is appealing. But I've been in this business for a long time, and people love the potential for more income on their hard-earned cash. Sorry, Dom, but the beauty of the fund is paying less taxes on cash. No, my friend, it's the potential for more income. Mm -mm. Less taxes. More income. Less
4: taxes. More income. For your cash, ask your advisor Mm -hmm. about the Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. Or find out more at dcmadvisors.com. Well, Dom,
1: one thing I know we agree on, it's not what you earn, it's what you keep.
4: Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. Symbol L-E-T-A-X. Tax. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800-441-7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities, the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax. After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors LLC and Ultimus Fund Distributors LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC.
0: You are listening to The Labenthal Report. If you have any questions or comments, please send an email to contact at Labenthal.com. Now, back to the Labenthal Report.
1: All right, I'm Michael Harsman back with my partner Dom Tavella and our special guest this evening, Phil Blancato, the president and CEO of Laiden Ladenberg Thalman Asset Management, Chairman of the Ladenberg Investment Policy Committee and Chief Market strategy Strategist at Oseic, which is a parent company. Phil, before we left, you mentioned interest rate, first interest rate cut by September. Dominic and I always felt the March hypothetical was ridiculous, right? So we never thought that was gonna happen. We're gonna be correct there. But the general consensus is May, June, you say September, pretty close to the election, What? And, you know, and again, I'm not disagreeing with you because I think that's a normal interest rate cycle historically. But what makes you say we're not going to get any hikes? I'm sorry, cuts until September. And how will the market react to that if you're
3: right? I'm going to give you two pros and one con. The first pro uh, and that the reason why I don't think they cut is the Fed traditionally would prefer to stay out of the election cycle. So we know that come June, we're in the midst of the election cycle. So if they can't get it done by May or June, it's very unlikely they're going to do, do anything in August or July and to a degree September. Now, uh, now if they are doing something in that time period, it means something's breaking and they're having the to breakage. So they are in the midst of political. So let's assume because of the politics, if they're not done by May or June, they're not, and June's not the, there's not a meeting in June where they're supposed to do it. So more than likely, it would have to be May. And I don't think it happens simply because, number one, politics. Number two. If you've been careful, I mean, I, I, it's one thing, you know, it's one thing to want to be six foot four Italian from half half and half, half from Sicily, half from Naples. It's another thing to be six foot. Four. Oh, I'm joking. I'm kidding. My 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 my, my point is nothing to want them to cut because you think it's successful for markets. It's another thing because they should cut. And the reality is, when you look at the PCE, personal consumption expenditure, which is the primary gauge of inflation, I know we talk a lot about CPI, but PCE is a more accurate exemplary number of inflation, specifically because it looks at 148 different specific items that you spend money on every day. And there's core CPC, which takes out food and energy. So whatever you're spending money on every day, it tracks. Super core PC even pulls out rents. And when you look at those really intricate data points of inflation, While they're certainly down 60% from where they were, they're still not where the Fed wants them to be. And they are between, believe it or not, three and a half to four and a half percent. So keep it simple. Let's just call 4% is where those core numbers are. And the Fed wants them at two. Without, and at this point, it's really very simple. Wages are higher than the rate of inflation. And until that changes, they're not going to cut interest rates. So those are the two reasons why I don't think they really do. The data doesn't suggest they should do. The economy is doing fine. We're probably going to have somewhere around uh, another GDP in the first quarter of between 2 and 3%. Fourth quarter was, as of this point, just about three two 2.5%. So there's no breakage in the system whatsoever. Even credit card debt, which was all the rage and concern, which was quite silly, the only thing we went do we we went to a higher rate of defaults than where we were in 2020 but we're back to normal de- rate of defaults and where we were in 2019. So credit card, auto loans, mortgages are at the same traditional default rate. There's no there's The consumer's not stressed from a debt standpoint. In fact, they've paid down some of their credit card debt, which is normal in the first quarter of the year. So when you look at some of these data points, it's suggesting that the Fed doesn't need to cut because the economy's doing just fine and wages are still strong in inflation. Those are the two reasons why I would say politics and data. Now, the reason why they may cut. Now, this is a little bit harder to understand. So if I'm making it too complicated, please correct me. If you look at current interest rates at 5.5%, let's just put them there and make it simple. And you look at current rates of inflation measured by headline CPI, which are 3.1%, or core CPI, which are 3.5%, the difference between the two. So let's just hold, we keep it simple. Let's say inflation's at 35 make it easy. Let's look at interest rates at 55 The difference between them is 2%. That means you have a scenario where the Fed's job has always been said to be, to keep people gainfully employed and keep inflation under control. I would disagree. That's a summary of what the Fed's mandates are. The real Fed mandate is to have an interest rate level that's not that doesn't create exuberance, people overborrowing like we did in 2008, or hindrance. We're not doing anything because things are too expensive. The way it is right now, you're in a hindrance scenario. You're hindering the general public. Look at the housing market. We're not building any homes. We're not selling any homes because it's just too expensive. So the hindrance is a headwind for the economy. So far, that hindrance has not created a restriction. But we look at something called the natural rate of inflation. And the natural rate of inflation is 3.5%, which then leads to the neutral rate of interest rates not creating exuberance or hindrance. And the neutral rate and the natural rate should match. And they're not right now. The difference is 2%. And for that reason, there will be some folks at at the Federal Reserve that will say we should cut to get those two in line. I would be surprised if they do, but that would be the impetus. So they might get all the good data they want and still cut. I just find that unlikely. So that's why I think September is more likely the scenario. Phil, uh, um,
2: staying on that point, right, we we have – We talked about these large cap growth stocks that have tons of cash on the side and earning really good interest rates on that cash. But if you look at the rest of the market, you look at the Russell 2000, small companies, mid-sized companies, they having to refinance that at a higher rate. You look at the real estate market having to refinance at a higher rate and let's not forget the federal government that has a third of its 30 trillion dollar debt maturing this year that needs to be re- refinanced you're putting a lot of pressure on the economy and the markets if you don't have a lower interest rate environment
3: isn't that also potentially a black swan event took the words out of my mouth that's the second one. First one is oil and second one is, is interest rates As I mentioned earlier, the payments of federal debt are closing in on $900 billion. They'll be at $1.5 trillion by 2030. $1.5 trillion will make it the second most expensive line item on a federal budget outside of Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. It'll prevent the government from spending on a stimulant way. At this point, we're on track to have $45 trillion in debt by 2040. That's a lot of money. Uh, So, no, we're the best house in a bad neighborhood. The rest of the world is worse than us. But the idea of stimulative economic growth, which, by the way, means stock market growth, you know, if you don't get economic growth, eventually you're not going to get stock market growth because you don't get companies earning more money or people earning more money for that matter. So then you have a scenario where you have something called stagflation. You have prices continue to push higher, but you have growth flatten out and be minimal, which the month of January to a degree represented that, by the way. Uh, We didn't get a ton of growth, but we also had prices still pushing higher. So your point, Dom, is the second black swan this year, $1 trillion of corporate debt will mature. So think about if you were running the, your your family business and you had the local soda, shore, soda, soda, soda shop and you were selling a mini market and you had a, a loan out to the local bank for hundred grand at, it was a 10 year note that you took out, you know, obviously 10 years ago or even five years ago. And your interest rates were probably three, maybe 4%. Now that hundred grand, you want to refinance it. So you go back to the bank, your, your, your notes coming due, at the, you call it uh, March 1st, you okay, I want to redo my loan. That number is now going to be 8%. So that doubling of the interest rate on your $100,000 note means the monthly payments that you send to the bank are going to be probably a third higher. So- and Phil, I'm not going to interrupt you on purpose. That's assuming the bank will even give you the loan. Uh, I would say the bank give you a loan. Why? Because the banks are flush with cash. They're, they're, if you look at something called the repo market, this is really technical. There's lots of banks giving the money back to the federal government in lieu of interest payments. So cash isn't the issue right now. They want to make loans. There's credit standards they got to meet, especially if the government's keeping an eye on small and regional banks. So they've got to be a little bit careful. If, if you don't have good credit, you're right. You might have a problem. But if your credit's fine, the business is doing okay, making that assumption. You're going to automatically have to raise your prices in the store to make up for the cost of having to send more money to the bank. That spiral is sort of, I, I liken it to the remember the old book we read in, in, in high school, Dante's Inferno. Well, it's the first level of hell for Dante's Inferno, because once the federal government and corporations get on this spiral and you hit the nail on the head, you're a smart guy, Don, Once we have, you know, federal government maturing a third of its debt this year and refinancing at a higher level they're on the same level eventually you have your debt gets so expensive you can't make enough money to pay it off and then you go to level two three four and you end up looking like china japan and europe which will never grow japan had a great year in the stock market you know why because they manipulated their interest rate environment to basically give money away for free which inflated the stock market it's not because they had exceptional corporate growth it's because they gave away free money just like we did uh, you, know, you could argue you've been doing that since 2008. It's artificially inflated a lot of the market, except for those seven names. So you look at some of this and you have to ask yourself, what's the thing that could really drag us down and put us in a, in a downward spiral for a long time? It is those two items. So what is the federal government trying to do? Well, hiking interest rates as fast as they've ever hiked them before, keep them higher for longer, which is why they don't cut anytime soon, because they've got to get those rates down for two reasons for the US, for the federal government to start having lower interest payments, and for corporations so we don't have an interest rate wall and they don't fall apart and they continue to hire people and pay them good wages and have decent earnings growth. All connects.
1: So, Phil, one congratulations. Three years of doing this show, first Dante's Inferno reference. Anyone who doesn't know what he's talking about, Google it. It's a it's a fun book.
3: <laughs> sure, it's <laughs> a fun book.
1: So so Phil, we talked about the magnificent seven, the amazing six, whatever it is today. What other I'm not gonna put you on the spot, I don't want you to name names, but give us some sectors you like when this thing does, you know, spread out a little bit. Where where would you look to allocate some funds? Is it healthcare? Is
3: it real estate? Uh, you know, what w- what sectors do you have a little bias towards? The real estate market's a bit problematic. I'm not quite sure. There's too many complicated factors. We're not building enough homes. We need to build two and a half million a year. We only have one and a half. The multifamily, we built six hundred thousand homes this year. We are overloaded in multifamily. And of course, there's the issues with institutional or commercial real estate. So I would stay away from there. The healthcare sector, I love. Artificial intelligence is a fun novelty. You want to have a good time with your family and friends, go into ChatGPT and put in some goofy questions and watch what it spits out. It's hilarious. So it'll put put in you want your, your trip agenda from here to Dominic Tavello's house in Florida and what stops you should make along the way. And it'll give you all kinds of fun things to do. It also is very problematic. Just in today's Wall Street Journal, there's a very extensive and interesting article about how some of its conclusions are based on miscellaneous facts that are erroneous. So you got to be quite answer about careful about the output. But where can it have a profound impact from a revenue and societal standpoint? It is without a doubt the healthcare sector, and with an aging population in China, the United States, and Europe, less so in the United States and more so in Japan and Europe. The healthcare sector, I think, is a wonderful place to make a long-term bet. Set it, forget it, and be thrilled that you did. I think there's a great opportunity there. On the other side of that, I love the small-cap sector. I'm not willing to make a bet into international markets just yet. That's a secondary opinion down the road. They did pretty well last year. Still didn't beat the S&P, but more diversified. The breadth of the European market is much wider than our breadth. More companies participated. We won won with a handful of stocks. They won with all their stocks. So that's the difference. So Europe is an interesting idea to come. Not quite there yet. But where do we get the greatest benefactor when the Fed cuts interest rates? Oh, boy, it's small cap stocks. So I would seriously consider owning small cap stocks. In the interim, between here and September, when I would make that trade, go buy the dividend. Go get paid some wonderful dividends. Go out there and buy yourself a municipal bond from the state of New York. If you live in New York and you're just getting pounded in taxes, go get a triple tax exempt bond bought for you by Michael Harsman or Dom Tavella. You know, there's a great way to build a solid municipal bond portfolio that can shield you from it. And by the way, the way bonds work, it's really simple. As interest rates go lower, prices go higher. Here's why. If I bought a bond today earning 4% and I can buy a bond six months from now earning 3%, which one would I rather have? One earning four. So what's going to happen? To the one that earns four, everyone's going to start chasing it, pushing its price higher. The one that earns three, no one's going to want it. So it's got to lower its price to make it more attractive. That's how it works. No different than when you go to the supermarket. What are you going to? What are you going to get more of? The stuff that's on sale. Why? Because it's cheaper. Same thing in the bond market. It's an inverse relationship, seesaw. So to me, the bond market is a is the best opportunity of the mall. Remember what I said before. The bond market has never ever lost money when we started cutting interest rates, and that should begin to happen at some point. And the stock market's right behind it. And then there was your best opportunity. It is in healthcare, small caps, and eventually international.
2: Bill, can we take a minute? Um, you know, we always talk about the stock market and, and I don't say it's a crapshoot, but we're always trying to predict the future. But you have an environment in the bond market where I don't know if it's going to be June or July or August or September, but we know the Fed is going to cut interest rates. And it's like you said, when they cut interest rates, bond prices go higher. Could could
3: there be anything more set up for a home run than that right now? It seems too good to be true. Uh, but then again, we've waited 20 years for this. So eventually, eventually the pendulum swings the other way. And we haven't made money in bonds in forever. So in that sense, yes, you would seem to be set up for this. Could it change? Let's for a minute take the other side. Let's say rates don't go down at all. In fact, let's say rates go higher. Let's say that all these are stimulants out there in the world that pushes even higher. Well, guess what? Being in the bond market, you still don't lose money. So let me explain how bonds work for a minute. Let's say I buy a portfolio of five-year bonds earning 5% right now. Every year I get 5%, and that's a pretty fair trade. You can do that right now, all day, every day. Okay, so let's assume interest rates go higher by 1%. Your portfolio of five-year bonds just lost 5% in its price because the bonds are going to come out next month. They're going to earn more than the bonds coming out this month. So just like I explained, prices will have to go lower to justify themselves. But if I'm making five percent in yield and I lose five percent because interest rates went higher, guess what? My net is zero. So I now have a scenario where I can make a bet on bonds, and even if rates go higher, I'm not gonna lose money. And usually there's an old motto that we all believe, because it's pretty doggone true. You don't fight the Fed. Eventually, the Federal Reserve is gonna get its way. And they might even have to let me throw a curveball at you, they might have to hike rates. If the, if the consumer keeps spending like this and hanging in there. what? But by owning a solid bond portfolio with high yields, it acts as a cushion. It's a big old cushion on top of the, my portfolio that prevents me, protects me from bad things happening. That's why right now, if I were you, I'd sell. of your of your profits in your mag seven. And I'd go buy value stocks and bonds that are going to help you have a balanced account that buoy your portfolio against risk. We ride out the first nine months of this year. And then when we come September, October, we can make a risk decision when we were out of the election cycle or darn close to it. But for now, buy those bonds and love the ride. And if things go opposite of what because I agree with you, Dom, it should happen. But in case it doesn't, we still don't lose. That's a pretty good deal.
1: So, Phil, to your point where you just said, in the unlikely event, the Fed has to raise interest rates, it's because the economy is doing better than expected, the market clearly would act negatively to that. It would be a, a, a tantrum, a sell-off It would be, in my opinion, be unfortunate. Are we in an environment now where investors finally believe good news is good news, Are we still in that kind of in-between where sometimes good news is bad news and and bad news is bad news?
3: We're not quite there yet, Michael. It's a good question. The reality is we still need some more bad news to get interest rates lower, and we're not there yet. Okay. The beauty of our relationship with with the markets, yours, mine, and Dominic's here, is that eventually, and I think that's probably 18 to 24 months away, probably 24, we're going to go back to a normal economic environment where we're no longer talking about the federal reserve because rates will be back at probably two and a half percent is where they end up. Inflation will be two, two and a quarter. Interest rates on a 10-year treasury will be around three to three and a quarter. That's what we all grew up with from 1980 till now. That's a normal economic environment. What does that mean? Boring. I Means stock market returns of eight to ten percent, not twenty-six inflated because of six or seven stocks, not a bond market that lost 16 in one year and three the year before that, and nearly lost last year. Those are unusual economic cycles. And it's because it's the residual impact of the United States and the rest of the world creating so many dollars. The reason why Bitcoin is 50000 bucks today is because its perception of value is more than the US dollar because of the limited amount of it. But the reality is when a normal economic environment where the governments of the world are not stimulating and you have a chance to win based on your ability to produce and be profitable and more efficient, that environment is where we're going to get to. But between here and there, you need some bad news to begin this process of getting back to normal. And we're not quite there yet.
2: So, Phil, just to kind of put you on the spot a little bit, which I, I love to do, um, you make a, a slew of economic calls uh, every year, at the beginning of the year, and you didn't as you normally do last year. And you, for the most part, were right. Uh, so what did you get most right last year and
3: most wrong? And then I think more important, I'd love to hear some of your calls for this year. So uh, I'll start with the bad. It's always fun to go to the good. But remember what we all do for a living, myself and Michael and Dominic. The beauty of making a call is it's designed to create a guardrail. And the reason why I want a guardrail is because if I can put your portfolio in the middle of those guardrails, it's going to protect me from bouncing off the side of the highway. But at the same token, it doesn't mean I can't along the way change direction. I can't take a different road. So it's one thing to have a starting point. It just can't be infallible. There is no such thing. So we have these starting points of projections that we like to look back and Tom's right. We judge ourselves all year long and make changes. By the way, when we make changes change to your portfolio, it doesn't cost you anything. We're doing it just to the economics of the marketplace. dictate We need to do that. So in that context... These, these calls are designed to not always be right, but be a starting point. So the first one we got wrong was we thought the Fed would start cutting interest rates in March. And I'm sorry, would we stop we stopped hiking interest rates last year in March, and they didn't stop until June. So we were the idea of lower rates of stopping was right. It just took a little longer than expected. What did it mean for the portfolio? Well, when we, for us, wanted to add more long-term bonds rather than short-term bonds, instead of doing it in March, We waited till actually September, and then we changed it. So we pivoted with it. One of the things we got right was that we thought the overall economy would fall into a recession, uh, a soft recession. And in fact, half of the economy did. So I give us a half right, half wrong. The the manufacturing sector of the United States has been in recession for 14 months. We have seen a a collapse in how much we make. Just now, for the first time in 14 months, it's turning up a bit. Because we bought all the stuff we wanted to buy coming out of the pandemic. What hasn't recessed is the service sector, which represents 70% of the US economy. So in that sense, and by the way, it's finally coming down from its peaks and it's just about back to flatline. We measure this every single month. So the service sector is hung in there. So I give us a half right, half wrong on that. And why that matters is because you pivot from owning names that are gonna only grow, 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 to pivot then owning names that are gonna pay a big dividend. Notice what I said to you a little while ago, because our economy and we all agree we're getting a slower economic environment, Earn your dividends. Own some bonds to protect yourself. That's how these these things have to connect. The next one was we thought stocks would do well, and they did. You know, so we're happy that the stock market did well. We're overweight stocks, and they actually kicked butt. One that we squarely got wrong. I really thought value stocks would outperform growth stocks last year, and they did not. So what did that mean for our portfolio? We didn't make a significant bet on value over growth. We're marginally overweight value in our largest names. But in mid-caps, when we saw the the trend changing, we overweighted mid-cap growth stocks, and that proved to be good dividend. So in other words, that's the best one of being wrong. We got that one wrong. Uh, But at the same token, we thought that we would have a scenario where we could still pivot and do okay. So we kept our large cap value position in place and we just added to our our mid cap value and that worked out pretty well. The next one were bonds. We thought long-term bonds would do much, much better than short-term bonds and they did in the fourth quarter. My gosh, you know what a long-term bond was up in the fourth quarter? Anywhere from, depending on how long you were, 10 to 20% in the fourth quarter alone, it kicked butt. But they were down a bunch earlier in the year. So in the end, long-term bonds were only up about three, I'll call it four for the year, and short-term bonds were up about five. So in theory, we got that one wrong. But by being in long-term bonds right now, we're getting a huge yield, and we have a chance to make some more money there. So we're still in that long bond one. Uh, and that pretty much has how we looked at last year. The last one was Europe. We thought Europe would become interesting again, and it did. We did quite well in European stocks. were less risky than U.S. last year, not as concentrated, just didn't beat the U.S. market. Pivoting to this year, really quite simple. One we think inflation is going to fall faster than most folks expect. And the reason why, while I'm worried about PCE and wages, if you look at the one month the three month and the six months numbers on inflation, they suggest that things are falling faster than expected. But Most importantly, rents, which are a big part of the inflationary gauge. If you look at Zillow, Zillow suggests we are back to rents where they were pre-pandemic nationwide. The federal government has a lag of about 6 months in how they how they judge rents. They're going to get there faster than we we expect, which is again lines up with my September cut scenario. So we think inflation does come down pretty quickly. We think that in the end stocks will have a pretty good year. We're looking at large cap stocks growing between 10 to 15% with a broadening out in the market in the fourth quarter of the year. Within the bond market is a phenomenal place to be, and you should add long bonds, and you should enjoy the ride in them because they're going to be really quite wonderful to the points we've already made. We think that small cap stocks will be a, a really fabulous opportunity later on in the year as well. Uh, and then we think the Federal Reserve does ultimately cut interest rates by the end of the year. So we've already hit on some of these in the dialogue here. But that's that's our summary for this year and where I think we're going. Five, five themes for this year. Rates fall faster. The Fed does cut rates. Own large cap stocks. Stocks do quite well. Do not go offshore. Own small caps when the market broadens out. And own the long bond. That's a summary, buddy.
1: That is a great summary. And we have about two minutes left. So I, I have one question for you. We touched briefly about the economy. Will the market care which one of these two gentlemen, which appear to be the nominees, will the market care which one gets elected?
3: Not at all. Not in the slightest. I think the market could care less. <laughs> is Phil, like Dominic
1: and I, Dominic, and I going to get that question 10 times a day, probably starting
3: June 1st? It's irrelevant. Let's not forget, it takes the Congress and the Senate to pass legislation. The president can want all he or she maybe wants, but in the end, it takes all three branches of government. Now, if you've the question, let's look at it this way. When a Democratic president elects a Democratic president, the average return of the market going back to 1930 is 11%. When a Democratic president elects a Republican president, the average rate of return going back to the 1930s is 13%, with the average being 12. Okay, so what does it tell me? Election years are good. Cycles matter. History is the starting point to being successful in the stock market. And history is on your side from the Fed cutting rates. History is on your side from election cycles. And history is on your side from uh, this this term of the election year is usually good for markets. So enjoy the ride. Don't be worried about it. Buy bonds. Buy good stocks. Go go on a vacation and stop worrying about all this crap. And Stop listening to the three of us banter on for no reason. Get rid of me and listen to these two guys say hell of a lot smarter than me. I don't,
1: I don't know about that, Phil. That uh, no, uh, wouldn't be true. if
3: We had you here. Um, we didn't have you here, uh, Phil. But
2: uh, sorry, if Micah, had I interrupted you?
1: No, I was going to say, Phil, you're a breath of fresh air, and we're going to make everyone. We're going to make sure every one of our clients receives this podcast tonight. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. Uh, enjoy available. your voice of
2: reason, Phil, and and. Uh, Looking forward to having you back and uh, looking forward to a good glass of wine as well. So (laughs) hopefully find an opportunity for that. I hope so too. See you all
3: soon. Thank you for having me. Have a good night, everybody.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Leventhal Report. Dominic and Michael will be back for our next program airing next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific time and 5 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then... Have a great week.